Be good. <laughs> Well, hello there, pals. It's your friend Andrew here on the Monkey Tooth Podcast. I am so glad to bring you today's episode. Uh, it's with our friend Joseph O'Leary, the wiser amuser. And I'm going to tell you all about him in a second. Uh, I first want to give some updates. So if you don't really give a shit about uh, what we're up to, I don't blame you. You just want to hear the cool people that we interview. Uh, I don't blame you for that at all. Uh, I want you to, to get right there so you can skip forward to the nine minute mark. And there you will, uh, you'll go right to the interview. But if you do care about all this sort of stuff and you've not already skipped forward, uh, I'm going to tell you a few things about what's going on with us. I am currently in um, the San Francisco Bay Area helping out a friend with a project for the next couple of weeks until after Thanksgiving. Um, Tiffany is down in Los Angeles looking for work. So if you're in the LA area and you want a smart, uh, cool lady to do a project for you, that's my wife. Uh, she's a nurse by trade, but um, she's clever. She'll figure it out if you need something done and you want to pay her a shitload of money to do it. Uh, so yeah, T- uh, Tiffany has the dog down there in LA. Um, we are, uh, we got a bunch of stuff going on. I want to talk about uh, what Chris Ryan has going on. Now, Chris Ryan, if you don't know, the host of Tangentially Speaking and uh, author of the book Sex at Dawn and the upcoming book Civilized to Death, has become uh, what I would dare say a friend to us uh, and has been unbelievably generous and and helpful to us on this journey. Um, he introduced Tiffany and I to a friend of his named Tao Ruspoli. And Tao uh, is now a friend of ours. Uh, he'll He's actually going to be an upcoming guest on this podcast. And he hired me to work for him. Uh, I'm going to be helping him out with a project called the Bombay Beach Biennale, which is a gathering of artists that's uh, out there to save the Salton Sea. You can more, learn more about that at bombaybeachbiennale.org. Um, it's a very, very cool event. I'll talk more about that another time. But anyhow, so that's going on. Um, I'm also uh, very happy to tell you um, I'm doing my very best to help uh Chris, Ryan, and Kyle Tierman with the Motherfucker Awards, the MOFAs, which is coming up on December 4th. If you're in the LA area and you want to come down to this, uh, there's still tickets available. It is, uh, it's going to be interesting. It's a bunch of comedians uh, and and really smart activists uh, and people who are pretty hip on the whole what's happening to our world scene. And they're going to sort of bring about... Um, Lots of laughs, lots of laughter, and uh, helping people think about and the sort of environmental catastrophe that we face with uh, humor. It's a deadly serious thing, but it's, uh, you know, if you can't laugh, you're just going to cry, I think. But anyhow, the Motherfucker Awards is coming up on the 4th, and the ask is that when you find out who wins different categories, uh, say... Someone wins the uh, category for, for fucking over our water supply the most. 
you can congratulate that person online by sending uh, you know, a tweet or an Instagram post and tagging whoever wins whatever category um, and say, hey, congratulations on being nominated for a motherfucker award, you motherfucker. But anyhow, we'll talk more about that later as well. That's coming up on December 4th in Inglewood at the Majestic Theater. Uh, our van. Uh, one of the reasons Tiffany is in Los Angeles at the moment is that our van has been um, going through some changes. It, uh, our transmission died. It was uh, just completely full of metal and debris and needed to be completely changed out. Um, and we're so thankful to Oliver at Yorks and Links Automotive. Uh, uh, he was sent to us, or we were sent to him by Chris Ryan. Another incredibly generous thing that that man has done for us on our journey. Anyway, our van is okay. Tiffany's driving it. It's back back in action better than ever. Uh, so big, big thanks to Yorks and Links and to Oliver and his sweet wife, Cheryl, for looking after Tiffany. It's just enormous, and we can't thank you enough. Um, if you are a Patreon subscriber to this show, I want you to know that your money this month is um, is going to go to fire relief efforts. Um, you know, people who've lost so much in California. Um, it, it's not a whole lot of money, but I just want you to know that uh, this month we are not going to be putting it into our greedy little pockets. We're going to give it to uh, people who've lost fucking everything. So, yeah, thank you, Patreon supporters. Next month, we'll go back to uh, just wasting it frivolously on our selfish journey of discovery. Okay, uh, that's all the personal stuff I wanted to say. Now, I'm going to tell you about our guest today, Joe O'Leary. Joe and I have a mutual friend, a guy named Brett Magdovitz, who uh, was actually the officiant at our wedding. He married Tiffany and I. And uh, he's been telling me about his friend, Joe, for many, uh, about two years now. And I was very excited to actually meet Joe. Joe made me breakfast, which if you know me, that is a great way to become my friend forever. Um, we hung out at his house, we walked the dogs, and then we sat down and just chatted for two hours. <laughs> and almost all of that is up here right now. Joe is a writer. He is a poet. He is a thoughtful guy. He is a a former college football player, a fantastically creative photographer, and he's just a, um, he's a sweet guy. He's a guide of both trail and river, and um, he's just a, the kind of guy that you want guiding you. He's a good father, and uh, you're going to get some insights from Joe today, and I'm, I'm very, I feel privileged to even do this at all. The fact that anyone listens and that anyone will talk to me and get in front of the microphone is so beautiful to me. But this one in particular, I know I say it all the time, but this one is really, really cool. I, I had such a good time. So before uh, I go too far, I want to read you one of Joe's poems, just like a little, um, a little segment. So here we go. It's your business to be you, your business, what you do. To stand for what you know is right and altogether true. To stand for why you're here, to share your special point of view. It's not your job to wait for a brighter light to bring you cheer. It's no one else's job to stand and fight for why you're here. It's your business to be you, your business what you do. To be the one who finds you when you're lost and want to hide. To be the one who's steering at the turning of the tide. 
It's not your job to wait for someone else to be your guide. It's no one else's job to be the one who will decide. It's your business to be you, your business what you do. That's just a little segment of one of many, many poems that uh, Joe, the wiser amuser, has written. Uh, Joe has a book available. There's links on our website. If you go to listen to the podcast on the mtp.dog website, you will find a number of links under every episode we've ever had with uh, songs that we've played in the episodes uh, and anything we've discussed in there. Uh, Links are right there. Uh, Joe's websites, his blog, his book, uh, you can go check it out. And I highly encourage you to buy a book because his images, uh, his photography is beautiful. His uh, writing is clear and insightful and fun and worth reading. So go on and get it. Go out and listen to uh, this episode. And when you're done, get a book. Get real. Have a good time. Thank you so much. Enjoy Mr. Joseph O'Leary. Thanks, Joe. Uh, thanks for breakfast. We're friends forever now because you've made me breakfast and coffee. That's all it takes for me. <laughs> Good. Had a nice little walk with the dogs. Um, I, I'll introduce you before we we uh, we launch it. But um, if you wouldn't mind telling me, I'll just say your name and what you do for a living. Uh, Joe O'Leary, Joseph O'Leary. Um, I'm a uh, currently I'm a concierge at a at a hotel in Boulder, Colorado. And I also, that's my full-time job. My part-time job is as an outdoor guide, mm-hmm. um, trails and trails and rivers in Colorado primarily. Yeah. And uh, I, I aspire to be a writer, photographer professionally. I've had bits and pieces where it's paid the bills, but uh, still keeping my day jobs until <laughs> I can make that transition. Yeah. Now, uh, where are you a native Coloradan? Is that how you'd say it? Are no, you from yeah, Colorado? yeah, yeah, you're right. That's how you'd say it. No, I was born in Connecticut. Connecticut. Um, New Haven, Connecticut. My dad was getting his uh, master's degree at Yale at the time, and mm. uh, my twin brother and I were born in New Haven. And uh, about at a, when we were about eight months old, we moved out to Seattle. Mm. My dad got his PhD at uh, University of Washington. And then when we were about almost four years old, his first job as a professor was at uh, Purdue University in, in Indiana. Yeah. That's where I grew up. Went in, to Indiana. Grew up high school, went to college at Purdue. Yeah. And then... Uh, and then left, haven't been back since really. Yeah. Well, I definitely, uh, before we get too far in, I want to talk to you about Purdue. As I understand that you ended up being the kicker for the football team. Right. right. You mind telling me that story? Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I grew up, I grew up in West Lafayette and uh, Purdue was kind of the, you know, that was the, that was the team. Um, and uh, I played, I was a soccer player growing up. And uh, we uh, we left for one year, our sophomore year in high school. We left to go to Clemson, South Carolina. My dad took a sabbatical, and he had a lot of peers down there. And we spent a year, played soccer down there. And one of the um, players, one of the seniors on the soccer team, kicked field goals for the football team. And we'd always talked about that, but hadn't really done it. And so when we went back for our junior year in high school, 
all of our best friends were playing football and we inquired and uh, football and soccer season were the same time but we uh, were able to work it out so that we would you know go to soccer practice right after school and then run across the campus and join the second half of football practice and we do special teams and we get our extra running in which is great for soccer and yeah. and um and uh it was we were successful as as a high school team and um had enough i had enough success as a kicker that um i thought it was a good idea to walk onto the football team at purdue another teammate of mine whose dad was a coach there we decided to do that together and uh made the team somehow and and um stayed on the team for the you know next few years i was a walk-on so um and then the stars aligned my i, I redshirted my first year so my my senior year academically was my junior year of eligibility and i was found myself in the starting position and that was the <sighs> 91 the 91 season <sighs> and uh had a mediocre season i think you know looking back I, it's clear to me that I just I wasn't prepared for what I got myself into and um, didn't really know what um, yet <laughs> what it was going to take to be successful. And I had a mediocre season. We got to the last game of the season as a team. We were um, weren't going to go to a bowl game, but our last game was against Indiana University. That's the big rival, you know. Mm -hmm. Growing up as a kid, you know, basketball, football, you know, whatever. Yeah. So we had an opportunity to spoil their opportunity to go to a bowl game. And they had a Heisman candidate, and so we're, you know, we're going to go down to Bloomington, we're going to beat them, and we're going to play spoiler, and we're going to salvage a mediocre season. And uh, it was, you know, the weekend of Thanksgiving. It was, you know, end of November, cold, rainy, gray, kind of a, you know, kind of setting the scene here. <laughs> and um, I, uh, I proceeded, I, I missed four field goals in the game. And so one of them was with 30 seconds left. And, and the, the, the first half ended, and Indiana was up 24 to 6. And the six points was a touchdown, and I had missed an extra point. So at halftime, I had missed two field goals and an extra point, you know. And it was, oh my, it was a nightmare. The nightmare had, had begun. But we came back in the second half, and we got to the point. I had missed another field goal, but I made one. And we had gotten to the point where it was 24 to 22. We got the ball, drove down the field, and they sent me out with 30 seconds left in the game to kick a 34-yard field goal, which was well within my range. And... um. And, you know, there had been a couple of previous ones where there was a bobbled snap and, you know, tough hold, but ultimately, you know, it's the kicker's responsibility. And, and, uh, but this time, great snap, perfect hold, got a solid hit on it, and I missed it wide right by about a foot. And so we, we had, I, I just, I think I went into shock. You know, it was, a, I it somehow ended up in the locker room at the end of the game at one point. Um, somebody came and grabbed me and tapped me on the back and I had been, you know, still had all my, all my uniform and shoulder pads and helmet on. I'd been just leaning against the locker. He said, Hey, the buses are leaving in 15 minutes. And I picked my head up and looked around and there was nobody in the locker room. Oh, it was just wow. me. So I changed my clothes and I remember, I'll never forget walking out into the rainy night and the buses with their lights on and everything are sitting out there and there's nobody. It was the only time I ever walked out of a after a game where there was nobody and mm. i had to endure the three hour you know bus ride back and i mean just utter embarrassing failure absolutely devastating for me um i think i still carry some trauma from that you know but i've over the years have found ways to use that um so i was you know like i said i was a walk-on and nobody 
was asking me to come back. Nobody was um, encouraging me to, you know, try again or anything. And and you know, through a series of conversations and and moments with you know with my brother, with my dad, and and um, I got to the point where I was like, if I don't try to come, this is this is potentially the rest of my life. If I don't at least try, um, then. I, this is not gonna. It won't be good. It's not gonna fare well for me. So, um, you know, in the meantime, in the off season, um, they had recruited and uh, the one of the top kickers in the country, a guy named Vito Special out of Chicago, and um, gave him a scholarship. And um, but I spent that winter. I I rededicated myself to um, getting better, getting stronger. Um, went to winter winter conditioning and was running and throwing up alongside 300 pound linemen and and um just putting myself through it and i had i I guess it took that for me to figure out what it was going to take to be good enough and um uh, we got through spring ball and i i came out of spring ball as the number one kicker and i i guess you know nobody was asking me to come back but nobody was saying don't come back right and so it was completely completely um the ball was in my court and and I think that for the most part, people just expected that Vito was going to be you know the next kicker. And in fact, all the preseason um, you know uh, magazines that talk about you know the, the the coming season, you know the special teams of Purdue was you know mediocre at best last year. Looking forward to Vito Special coming in and taking over the kicking duties. And um, I worked three jobs you know over the summer um, before the final season, and um, would intersperse my weightlifting and you know practicing I'd walk out into the middle of the field with a bag of balls and I'd set two cones about a you know one stride apart and I'd go 40 yards and I'd just practice just splitting the cones and and uh season came in and and uh, it was a battle and I won the starting position and um our first game of the season was against Cal that year Cal came to see us and um we got the ball, drove down, got stopped, and they sent me out to kick a 34-yard field goal. Same same <laughs> distance as the one that I had missed. Um, and I made it and made another field goal in the game. We won. We beat Cal. And, and uh, I proceeded through that season to make my first 12 straight. I think I still hold that record, the most consecutive field goals in wow. Purdue history. <laughs> um, and was... Um, you know, we got to the end of the season. We were again kind of a losing season. It was '92 losing season, but we had some successes, and we had IU at our, you know, at home as our last game of the season. And they had Trent Green was their quarterback, who was a longtime professional with Kansas City, and and um, they were playing for something, and we were just playing for pride. And um, we uh, and at this point, I'd been nominated as an All American. I had been named a finalist for the um, first annual Lou Groza Award, which is the, the it's sort of the, like the Butkus Award goes to the best linebacker in the country, and the, I think it's the Campbell Award that goes to the quarterback or whatever it is. Anyway, the Lou Groza Award is now the, goes to the nation's top kicker. And, um, but we had Indiana, and so I was the, you know, I was the front page of the, the game program and, and the whole story about how I'd come back and everything. And, um, you know, it was the redemption story. Yeah. Um, and and it was an interesting game because I went out and I, I kicked I made my first attempt in a field goal of the game of that game. I actually missed it wide right, oh. which is interesting. <laughs> and I was like, you could hear this like hush in the crowd. And but I I think I'd I'd done so much work, 
you know, as much as anything in my head mm-hmm. that season that um, I, I wasn't phased. And um, I went out, kicked another one, made another one, and, and um, ended up making two more field goals. And we got to the end of the game. We were up 13 to 10, and Indiana drove the ball all the way down to the end of the field. They were on the four. Quarterback runs around, throws the ball in the end zone. Our guy intercepts it, you know, runs it back a little ways. And Trent Green tackles him out of the end zone, gets ejected from the game. The fans stormed the field, tore down both goalposts, carried both goalposts out of the stadium, dropped one off in the middle of, the, of campus. And I know this because one of my roommates was part of the mob. <laughs> they And then they took the other goalpost down to the, the main bar area. Harry's Chocolate Shop is, a, uh, is the historical kind of bar that every Purdue alumni knows. <laughs> Parted out, stopped traffic, parted out in front of, uh, of Harry's Chocolate Shop, and then they proceeded to carry the goalpost down the hill to a bridge over the Wabash River, tossed the goalposts <laughs> into the Wabash River, and it was never recovered. That, that, those goalposts are still at the bottom of that Am river I, somewhere. So, um, so that was, I, you know, I, thank goodness. Um, it, it couldn't have, and I don't know that it could have gone better. Um, and... You know, but it was to the point where you know I had NFL tryout letters and zero desire to pursue them. I really, was, I was absolutely. I had completed my uh, my football career at that point. I was um, there was nothing more for me to do in football. You know, wow. and uh, and that's when I uh, I went and became a river guide <laughs> in West Virginia. At that point, it was the only thing that interested me. Wow, where so, does which one of your folks gave you that try try again sort of thing? Is that do you see that one of your parents? Or? Primarily my my brother and my dad. Yeah. So at first it was my brother. We were, um, it was like everybody, you know, all of our buddies were back from college for Christmas break, you know, after that game. And we had gone out to pizza and I had been pretty much hiding out. I think I didn't go to any classes after that, you know, from the, for the last month. I went to my finals, hid in the back, you know, and took my finals and went home and was pretty much, you know, reclusive. And, um, but I had agreed to go out to, to pizza with with all of our high school buddies and it, and we were the pizza came and my brother um, is like staring at me and he's and he says hey Joe pass the salt it's wide right you know and I picked my he- head up and looked at him and he's just staring at me you know stone faced you know and all of our buddies are kind of looking at each other with their eyebrows raised what and it broke me so that was the first that that kind of loosened me up you know yeah. and um and then my father took me for a walk at one point and had a conversation and it was sort of this you know we all have you know these trials and tribulations in life and and you know the question is um what are you going to do about it you know you have it's 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 an opportunity if you make it that and um and you know, you you can do something about it or do nothing about it. Yeah. But this is, um, it's up to you. Yeah. Yeah. I heard someone say recently, we don't learn from doing it right. You know, it's that it's the failure. Like doing it right might be the end result mm-hmm. if you're lucky. Yes. <laughs> but, but the learning doesn't come from success necessarily. A- absolutely. I have, there's actually two little mantra poems that I that have come out of this. One was... One goes, uh, like not knowing what you're getting into, mm-hmm. you know, and it goes, um, sometimes not knowing what you're getting into will give you the chance to get through what you wouldn't if only you knew all the crap it'd make you do, you know? And I think for me, I had really, truly, it didn't, didn't understand the, the, 
the impact of walking on to that football team was going to have on me and the people around me. And, you know, I didn't really know that I had that kind of potential power, I guess, to make it makes an impact good or bad you know yeah. certainly it was bad and then i had a good side and then the uh the failure piece um um right there's a reason right if, if if you're if you're available to learn the lesson as opposed to becoming like we talked about earlier you know you could become bitter mm-hmm. from failure or you could grow from it and um i wrote a poem that goes um to expand and grow your content to bolster your resolve, to plant the seeds of intent, to force you to evolve. You might not like it now, you might not feel its lift, but time reveals the silent vow of failure's timeless gift. Hmm. And I think I learned that, I certainly continue to learn that, and yeah. that, that that particular experience, such a public embarrassing failure, yeah. and uh, being able to, having, you know, had I not gone back and at least tried to, you know, make the team the next year and play again, I, don't, I think I'd be bitter in mm. life right now. I don't, I don't think I'd be the person I am for sure. Um, but that forced me to evolve. It forced me to face discomfort. Now that I know the way it goes. You gotta pay back every penny that you owe Twelve years old In your mama's clothes Shut the blinds and lock up every door And if you hear Someone's coming near Just close your eyes and make them disappear The, the going back and trying again, I think, and I don't know what your character was like before this, but that you don't blame the snap or the hold or any of that sort of stuff. That you, I feel like if you'd not gone back, you would have, your story that you told yourself might have been a little different. You know, that you may have been in bitterness. A bitter person looks for someone else to blame, to yeah, point a finger. Right. You know, I could have ended up a lot shallower, right? There was, you asked, like, what were some of the influences? There was one other. There was another. There was a player on the team that after that, like that, was interviewed after the game, after that IU game where mm-hmm. I had such a, I had failed so deeply, and he he was a linebacker. He ended up going on and playing in the NFL, and he he made a comment saying because they had asked him directly, you know, how do you think, you know, how are you feeling about the way this ended and everything, and he said he goes, I, he goes, Did anybody see how many tackles I missed today? No, because nobody nobody looks at missed tackles and nobody. You know, he goes, I know. He goes, I'm carrying the, the amount of missed tackles. I missed more than four tackles. You mm. know, he missed four field goals, but I missed more than four tackles. But nobody nobody looks at that statistic. Mm. And so he had expressed a certain, you know, compassion and empathy. And, and uh, that always stuck with me. I still feel, and he probably has no idea that that, that <laughs> had such an impact on me. That's great. But Who was, do you remember that guy? Jim Schwantz. Jim Schwantz. Jim Schwantz, yeah. He went and played. He played for the Cowboys, played for the Bears. Huh. And, uh, yeah. Interesting. Fascinating. So, there's, actually, there was one other interesting thing too. The next morning after the game, I got I'd been getting phone calls galore, and I just hide down in my room. And one, I, one of my roommates came in and forced me to take a call, and it was our coach. Mm-hmm. And our coach said, "Look out the window." And uh, Coach Jim Coletto, I was like, "What are you talking about?" He goes, "Look out the window." I opened my window and looked out. 
I was like, I, what, do you, what do you mean? He goes, the sun came up, didn't it? That was another little moment <laughs> yeah. where I was humbled a little bit. I needed more time, but uh, yeah. there were little little things like that that I remember that were super supportive and helpful. Yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, you've got the sort of depth of curiosity to, to notice those things. You know, not everybody's picking up on those sorts of things that that life and the people around you, the people who love you and the people who are oblivious to you, you know, yeah. that, that they're putting down for you to pick up. That's, mm-hmm. Well, that leads me to um, your, I don't know if it, it's fair to call it your alter ego, but your uh, your handle, your your name, the wiser amuser. Mm. Uh, you've mentioned poetry here. You, you write poetry, you write stories, um, you do a lot of photography. You've got a very, uh, your photography is fantastic, by the way. Thank you. I, I've really enjoyed it. It's all over your home, which is great. Yeah. And I've, I've seen your book that I know you're going to be publishing soon, which we'll, we'll talk about in a second, but that you're... I don't know. It, it's unfortunate that a lot of times in, in nowadays we associate athleticism with something other than a depth of character and an, an artistic expression, but that seems like an enormous part of who you are. Uh, we met what a couple hours ago, and immediately we were in this weird, deep conversation about strange, esoteric things. Mm-hmm. What's that influence? How? Where did that come from in you to be expressing in that way? Um, a lot of idle time, I would say, initially. So when I graduated, we, you know, we talked about you know, retiring early and often. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that, that by not going and getting a job and moving to a city and, and, and by not pursuing NFL trial letters and moving to West Virginia to be a river guide, and I, made, you know, I was making $5,000 a year and thriving. And yeah. um, I lived in a cabin with electricity but no indoor plumbing. And um, I had an enormous amount of time. Um, not just to play, um, and I was working, you know, but yeah. uh, but also to think and read and go for long walks and runs and biking and learning how to kayak and and um, and I started I started journaling at that time and um, primarily to um, share with my brother because he and I had, we were twenty two and had never been apart for more than a week at that point and suddenly we're he's living and he moved to Chicago and I was in West Virginia so I wanted to make sure that I. I could somehow give uh, a glimpse into what I was experiencing every day, you know, and that it, that he wasn't experiencing it too was pretty significant to me at the time. Um, and so taking pictures, you know, talking about, primarily it was just talking about what I did during the day, but over time, the more I was writing and the more I was, th- you know, thinking about um, and contemplating my life and reading different kinds of books and meeting different kinds of people and you know, growing up in Indiana, I think I was pretty, pretty sheltered. And um, suddenly I'm in this world where not only I was, I, nobody knew that I had a twin, you know, I wasn't, this, um, I was just me, um, but it was, everything was new. So, um, and so I had, a, I was having a lot of fun and um, exposed to different things. And, and, and I eventually, after several years, I through hiked uh, the Appalachian Trail which six months, you know, and hiking, you know, and you meet people and you're spending time with people, but you also spend a lot of time in your head as well. And mm-hmm. um, one guy described his process that, you know, like the first month or so was, so am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? You know, and checking himself and thinking about his past. And, you know, he kind of thought about everything, you know, a dozen times and kind of worked through all of his past. And, and then sort of, and then it was, where am I going? Where am I going? What, you know, what am I going to do? What's my future going to be like? 
work through all that and then realize at some point it's like well, there's no sense in you know spending too much time on that um and it just got present and i think i had the same experience where after a few months being out there you know you're in the rhythm of walk of the walk and you're um you know the conversation is extraordinary whether you're alone or with someone yeah <laughs> um and i think it, it just it becomes it, it just became part of the fabric of my um I don't know, for lack of a better word, I guess, existence. And, um, and and I was continuing to write. I was journaling a lot at the time. Uh, I was journaling every day when I was on the Appalachian Trail. And a lot of my content was starting to move from um, the tactical things that I was doing, the, 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 the names and the details of the day and where how many miles I walked and where I'd been, to more just um, the fantasy fiction world that was just flowing through my head that I wasn't even I wasn't even deliberately checking into I just would find myself um a spectator and what was flowing through my mind and and literally like like laughing like where is this coming from <laughs> you know and um and I just started to receive it with, with with a lot, you know, more and more gratitude, and was writing more and more of that stuff down, and kind of connecting dots, and and it became stories, it became characters, it became um, different worlds, and uh, and so I just like I guess that it's a very long answer to your to your question, which the short answer is idle time idle and time. some freedom to just really let content flow. Yeah, you know. Well, I've I've read some of your writing, and you do have worlds. There's so much going on, and I mean, not just your poetry, but your fiction. You, um, I feel, I don't know, maybe you can tell me how this works for you, but if I sit to write something, and it's an interesting cognitive shift when you do start to sort of journal or, or, or keep a hold of what memories, what things are happening to you. I can only imagine what, how that changed human beings. Once that was a, a thing we could do, you know, an evolutionary time when suddenly we went from an oral tradition to a private person can write down their thoughts and ruminations and then come up with things that aren't really there, you know, and and, yeah. and, and write them down and share them, not for the sake of making you believe that they're there, but they're, that you can just experience this thing that I've made up. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. But uh, when, I, when I sit down to write, and, and fiction in particular, but... Um, I'll I'll lose myself. I'll suddenly inhabit this other world of whatever it is, creativity, and then I come to later, whether in an interruption or I have to piss or something, and I come back and I read. It's like I've told my I'm telling myself a story. Yeah. Like I get like I like it's coming from elsewhere, and when I go back to actually read it, I'm experiencing this thing again with a different set of eyes. You know. It's like you're a receiver, right? Kind of. Like, there's a there's the concept of that ideas are in the air. Mm. It's just a matter that you happen to be the one that walks through that space of air to actually catch that idea, and then whether or not you do something with it or not is, you know, it happens or it doesn't. I, I really yeah. believe that in many cases, you know, I'll go for a walk and I'll come back with an idea that it certainly didn't exist in my head before I went for that walk. Mm. And I feel that I just happened to have maybe walked into a the right moment space. in time and space that uh, that I was able to, and happened to be open to it. And, and you also have the tools to, to sort of carve out 
whatever it is, you know, to make the relief of, yeah. of what you've experienced. Where did you get those tools from Purdue? Did you, were you a writer before? Or? No, no, I, I, um, very young. I, I think I was, I had some promise as a, you know, as a writer, I, I kind of understood that the dynamics of grammar and, and putting pieces together, but I was bored in high school when it came to composition and college. I think I squeaked by in composition class. It just wasn't I wasn't as enga- I wasn't as engaged in life. I think I was too immature. I didn't have enough life experience. I didn't have anything to apply anything to. And but it wasn't in, until you know I had the I had the, the the basics of writing rules and grammar. Right. And but I think that because I wasn't as tuned in when I was in in school, um, I think I'm probably catching up now in terms of. Um, I think I've got great stories. You know, yeah. the stories are there. I, I, they're in, they're, they're in my head. And when I write them down, I can tell them, and you can understand what's going on in the story. But I think there's, a, I'm certain there's a whole other step right now. To probably working with an editor mm-hmm. and working with somebody that gets it and can help me take a great story and, um, and write a great story. I'm telling one to writing one, I think, yeah. is, a, is a big jump. And that's I think that's going to be my biggest challenge moving forward. It is, yeah. without a doubt. But you tend not to overwrite, which is nice. But the poetry is helpful. Yeah. Huge in, in terms of being um, more succinct mm-hmm. and not wasting words. And that's an ongoing battle with perfection, which is a whole other problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm unencumbered by the need to strive for uh, perfection. <laughs> I just, I don't. It's never been a thing. I, I know it's not possible, so I don't even. And I, I'm not sure even what it is. So I can't. But I do tend to. Uh, if I go back and read whatever crazy story I've just told myself, <laughs> I notice there's a lot of extra words. Yeah, you can just whittle and whittle and whittle. Mm-hmm. So it's it's nice that that you have that um, that other thing, the poetry, to that that's so subjective. I know there's different styles and different mm-hmm. things. But whether or not poetry is any good is it's you know it's like any art, someone appreciates it, and and good almost doesn't matter, mm-hmm. you know if it gets something across to someone it's worked, yeah. it's made it you know yeah I think there's a there's a well I'm you know I'm curious about that you know for you do you do you have a muse like who you do you have someone that you're writing to is there an actual person or an idea or an audience because sometimes that's that influences when i go back and look the quality of my writing Hmm. and even the style of it sometimes it's my sons that Hmm. i'm writing to the wiser muse are very much they're very much a my muse for a lot of those because God, if they can get, if they can learn some lessons without having to make the mistakes that I made, you know, <laughs> if it just won, you know, it'll be worth it. You know? Right. Um, but is is that is that a thing for you? Do you know, or do you connect uh, with that? You know, I um, so we lately I journal quite a bit about this journey that we're on, um, and and so far as there is an audience for that, it's me later. No, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's one of the great things about this podcast is it gives me an opportunity to hang out with you again when I'm long gone or yeah. we're far away from one another. But when it comes to fiction, I, I've had this experience where I feel almost accountable to the beings that I'm creating, mm. if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're my muse, like I need to write them into this existence. And it honor, sounds honor them kind of right it sounds like i've got a bunch of crystals in my fucking van or something like i'm just it's not it's not that airy fairy but it, there is something where i feel i do feel like uh 
I don't know. I'm, like I am telling the story to myself, so perhaps I'm my own audience. I'm, yeah. I'm so narcissistic that I'm my own audience. <laughs> but but it's more that these characters. I feel like you know the characters and the stories and the ideas. I, I want them to exist, and so they're my muse. I want to I want to create them so that they can entertain me later i don't know maybe some sort of sadistic wannabe god who knows <laughs> or in some cases it's a it's almost a um an accounting of your experience so that you can go back at some point I, there's a whole i got a whole nother poem on this but this idea so when i i threw hiked the appalachian trail in 1997 i kept a journal every day and I held on to that for years. And then in 2009, when I was going through my divorce, just as things were starting, and I was just a wreck, I had failed everywhere in my life. And, and I was, um, I had taken myself skiing for the day, and my, my inquiry for the day was, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. And, and everything has everything fallen apart. And um, I'd, I'd been on the lift, it was a Thursday, and there was nobody there. And I had, uh, I was bawling my eyes out and I don't cry it takes a lot for me to get to that point I cried all the way up the lift wiped the fog off my goggles hammered down the mountain I even left my poles in the car and just as fast as I could down the mountain could barely stand at the bottom get back on the lift ball my eyes out the whole way out and after about the fourth time I got about halfway up stopped crying was checked in no idea is this going to happen he was gone and I was light Suddenly, there was a clarity and just a lightness that I think just the crying released. Um, that weight and that heaviness, and I and I connected with a feeling. I felt free hmm. and unencumbered. And the last time that I had felt that was when I was on the Appalachian Trail. And here, twelve years later, um, you know, on the surface, I was you know generating more. I think on 1997 when I did the AT, I think my my Social Security, you know, when they send you that <coughs> that piece that says how much money you made every year <clears throat> i think 975 dollars was my income for 97 and mm. here i just come off a year where the most money i had ever made in a year i had i had accomplished <clears throat> and i had a home and i had all this stuff but it was all weight i was just weighted down materially emotionally karmically just at this image of when I was on the Appalachian Trail, I had my backpack and everything I needed, and I was light, and I was mobile, and I was free, and I was, you know, experiencing everything and totally awake. And here I was, twelve years later, with, you know, this image of a house and kids and and money and and debt and all these things, and all you could see was my feet sticking out of the bottom of this massive pile of just karmic weight. Mm-hmm. And and I thought, if I can somehow connect with the freedom that I felt, it, that was what I was missing. I was missing that freedom. You know, I had more responsibility and I had accumulated things. But so I, the motto when I hiked on the Appalachian Trail was lighten the load. Mm-hmm. And every morning you wake up in the morning, it's lighten the load. You're eating your food and you just want to be as, as light as possible, as efficient as possible so that you could cover more space, not just mileage, but, you know, all of your senses, mm-hmm. you know, taking in your entire experience. Um, as efficiently as possible, and so, um, so I thought, all right, I'm going to go home and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to start a blog, and I'm going to um, and I'm going to go and I'm going to look for and see if lightintheload.com is available, and I'm going to post my journal from 1997 every day, and I'm going to I'm going to process that. 
And I got home, EnlightenTheLoad.com wasn't available, but I eventually uh, bought Enlighten the Load because awareness was going to be such a big key, key here. I, I needed to be able to see how I'd gotten myself here. I needed to be able to contrast that with how free I was, was take from that what I could now while balancing that with the responsibilities of fatherhood and all this stuff. So EnlightenTheLoad.com was, was the domain. And that year on... In 1997, I started hiking. My first journal entry was March 19th, 97, the day before I started. So on March 19th of 2009, I entered my first entry from 97. And I did that for the next six months, every day. And holy smokes, that was what a, what a cathartic process. And I initially started to respond to myself, you know, as if, as if uh, I would write my 97 journal entry, and then I would respond saying, you know, Dear Aquaholic. My, my trail name when I threw hiked was Aquaholic. Aquaholic. So I'd say, Dear Aquaholic, and I'd kind of talk about my day. And I stopped, I was doing that publicly at first, but then I stopped doing that. I thought I needed to, I, I read some of my entries, and I, I thought I need to do this privately, hmm. you know, kids and all that. And, um, and that started a, it started an inquiry, and I started looking at my life critically in a way that I hadn't in a long time. And I realized where I'd become complacent. And I realized where I had sort of checked out, and how a lot of the ways that a lot of the decisions I was making were based on inherited belief systems. What I, how I thought I needed to be or should be as a husband, as a father, whatever. And I had really set aside a lot of the things that I was interested in or was pursuing before. You know, I decided, well, I'm going to be a dad, and I'm going to get a job and have insurance and all that kind of stuff, which was, you know, there's, there's a, you can go back and forth about what, which decisions were right and wrong. It doesn't, you know, either way it was, what was done was done. Right. And, um, but I think that that really started a, um, a conversation with a younger self, yeah. a part of myself that, that was certainly enjoying a better flow in life, but also was somewhat naive. And so, you know, each time I would enter my entry from 97, when I was 26, 27 years old, I felt who I was then. I connected with who I was then. And then I would have a loving conversation with that self, with who I was today. You know, talk about, here's, you know, here's some areas that I'm going to disappoint you, <laughs> you know. Um, but here's some, here some real-life lessons that I've learned as well that you're going to have to, you're going to, have to learn. You know, this is a fascinating and powerful thing. And I would imagine that you might have an ongoing this podcast, I'm sure, is going to be huge for the rest of your life, a, a, a connection yeah. into an important part of yourself that's just going to keep evolving. And, well, to, to your point of there being, or having access to your younger self, I kind of feel like whoever you have been in your life, whether you're a small boy, teenager, young man, an adult, an old man, that's always available to you. And I experienced this, if you don't mind, I'll tell you a little story Please. about my, um, my grandfather, my stepfather's dad, who um, lived to his 90s. And um, he had just been this dynamic. There were seven children, and he had seven children. Really dynamic man, you know, Edward, Edward Gaudet. Freaking cool guy. Loved him. <laughs> totally loved him. And, uh, you know, he, he, as he got older, you know, he started to suffer from dementia um, but he'd always been really sharp and really with it. And uh, I visited him once. My, my stepdad and my mom had been taking care of him. He and his wife had to live in separate facilities because she was more physically ill and had you know other things going on. So they needed different types of care and couldn't be cared for in the same, which was kind of its own sadness and tragedy. But mm. 
he, as he started to become more, um, I don't know if confused is the right word, but not totally tethered to the right now. Mm -hmm. Um, he was not very lucid and conversation with him could be difficult. Um, he would be confused about who was who. Anyhow, um, I show up and we didn't know each other all that well. We knew each other well enough, you know, uh, and he and I got into this conversation that I'll never forget. It was so beautiful. It was, um, I don't know if it was just because he hadn't seen me, and suddenly there's this new guy with a beard in, in his home talking to him. <laughs> and um, it was like talking to my grandfather as a child. It was him. It was Edward. But he was a small boy. And he, it, it wasn't that he thought, hi, I'm a five-year-old boy. He just... His affect and his yeah. inquisitive nature was that of a young child. And he was like, uh, how, how old am I? I said, I think, I can't remember. I feel bad not knowing his age right now, but I said, maybe you're 89 or 91, or whatever. I said, 90. Well, how long has a man got to live? It's like, well, I mean, as long as you can, really, I guess, you know, as long as you want to. Oh, well, uh, and he's looking at his hands. He's like, can I, can I still do things? Can I build? Wow. Can I make stuff? I was like, well, I don't know if you can or not, but the good news is you don't have to. You worked really hard, and you did lots of creative stuff in your life, and you have money. you got plenty of money, so if you need something, you can just ask for it and pay for it, and you have it. And he's like, I got money? Wow. And uh, you know, it, every, every bit of the conversation was like experiencing this man who I knew as my grandfather uh, as a young boy. Mm. You know, And it was just... It was an insight into that, like, well, where is you? You know, where is the you that you think is you? Where does it live in you? And, you know, are you segmented in the little boy you, middle age you? That it was such a beautiful thing for me to see him, you know, just express this like childlike sort of thing. Yeah. And he wasn't afraid. He wasn't sad. He was just curious. And uh, it was a special moment for me. And it, it, it when you were talking about, um, being able to respond to your younger self and thinking in terms of your younger self, it resonated with me because I could, mm. I saw that come out of a man who, you know, as your whatever happens in your brain when you experience dementia, he suddenly just had me swirled back around to that, to that young boy, and yeah. it was just so cool. And my, my stepdad and my mom were there, and they they really they got a kick out of it because it was like. You know, getting to see this uh, this expression was like kind of cool for them because they, you know, it'd been challenging, and, but to see this like kind of fun, inquisitive com- kind of conversation where he was like, "Oh, whew, good, I got some money, I don't have to build anything, I'm gonna be okay, I don't, I can live as long as I want, or not, you know." Yeah, well, it sounds uh, to me too like a like a absolute um, presence, you know, like being in the present moment. You know, there's a timelessness and an agelessness when you can. We were talking about the dogs earlier, about mm-hmm. you know how every moment is best day that's, that's ever, the one. and yeah, and uh, I would imagine, and I've have, have a friend who's done a lot of work with Alzheimer's. In fact, mm-hmm. he ad- adopted a sixty-five-year-old man with Alzheimer's who didn't wow. have family and everything. And what he learned, I never thought about that. You could adopt an old person. Yeah, he did. He, that's he, a great. He volunteered at a senior home, and this old man, Carl. 65 didn't have any kind of family that anybody knew of and he was alzheimer's didn't really remember anything but so he adopted him and and one of the most profound things that i just recall him talking about that he learned with carl is that when you have alzheimer's all they have is the present moment that's it they don't have any memory of the past they're not thinking about the future it's the present moment they have every now and then a moment of memory 
And he said one day he was at work and he got a phone call from Carl, and um, and his and like all Carl said was Chris Christopherson, you know. He's like, what are you talking about? And then Carl, you know, lost it, you know. And so he goes home, and he and Carl's sitting there, and he asks Carl, said, what, what did you mean by Chris Christopherson? He's going, I don't know what you're talking about. And he walked into the kitchen, and and the newspaper was open on the kitchen table, and there was. There was a Chris Christopherson was coming to Denver for a concert, you know, and he's like, "Hey," and he wanted Carl. Do you like Chris Christopherson? Yeah, I like Chris Christopherson. You want to go to a show? He's going to be. I'd love to go to a show, you know. Yeah. And and he would. They would go for walks, and 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 Carl would see an ant and get into the ant and just be. He was childlike. Yeah. He was also just completely present and in wonder of whatever was going on and. Once he discovered, once my friend David discovered that, that was kind of how Carl was interacting with the world. It became less stressful for him to care for Carl because mm. he knew that that's if he could just get wherever Carl was in the moment, yeah, he could manage the situation. God, that sounds really good for you in a way. Yeah, you know, right? it sounds like <laughs> Alzheimer therapy, like pre-Alzheimer therapy for people right now. Yeah, you know. Uh-huh. I mean, I know it's not like all fun and games. It's not like you're just constantly exploring and looking at the ground. I get it. I get it. Mm. But there's, that's the thing with any, with anything, nothing's just certainly good or certainly bad. You know, there's just all this mix. Mm. I imagine it'd be hard as a family member to be dealing with somebody with Alzheimer's or any kind of ALS. If you have a friend that right. dies from ALS or anything that that's such a paralyzing um, situation, but if you can somehow let go of the need for that person to know who you are yeah. or to remember something or yeah. um and you can be present there could be just a deep ongoing life yeah. lifelong gift there to it's to it's never black and white yeah. it's never just strictly horrible or strictly wonderful you know that's the thing about being totally present uh-huh. is that you see that coming moment to moment you know uh-huh. like oh, this moment was good that hurt this was great mm-hmm. that's nice uh mm-hmm. have you ever heard of steve gleason the the um he was a, uh, a NFL football player for the Saints. ALS. Did he get ALS? Yeah. That, yes. He's still living. Still living with it. And a uh, very powerful documentary about him. Uh, nothing, no white flags might be the name of it. Okay. Uh, and here's a guy, you know, just strong, just fit, happy, loving dude who uh, the moment he realized, I can't remember if it, he had his child first or had it after, but suddenly like, has a boy and ALS, and he sees the future on the wall, you know? So he started, like, having this experience, doing all this stuff to, like, get it all in while he could, you know, this mm. active, like, trips and these things. And um, then started really journaling for his boy, like, talking and just making this beautiful thing for his son. Uh, it's it's really powerful. It's worth checking out on Netflix or Amazon. Mm. But... Um, and he's still living and i mean talk about being imprisoned like he's you know can't physically do much of anything other than maybe communicate with one of those uh, um uh stephen hawkins type devices mm-hmm. um and, you know very special stuff and yeah. I've, got, I've got friends who work with him and, and work for that foundation the no white flags thing but you know out of all that tragedy and all that sadness there's so much beauty and and you know, he's raised money for all types of totally disadvantaged people who have had that same thing. He's like, mm. well, I've come from a place where I've got some resources and I've got some ability and I've got a little notoriety and I can, I can and he's still passionate about helping other people with ALS wow. while it's just literally, I mean, 
eating away at all his muscle and all the things and everything except for his mind and his eyes right isn't that it affects everything but your mind and your eyes that's a i have a friend who who was diagnosed and passed away several years ago and and um it was i would you know it was right in the middle of the ice bucket challenge and when i went i would i took uh I went up to a glacier up near the Continental Divide, not far from here, and I took a couple of uh, gallon jugs and went and scooped the you know, glacial sludge out of this yeah. thing and dumped it on myself, and it was pulverizing. And it was, and I, it was at that moment I realized, oh, right, ALS is a pulverizing disease, not just for the person who's suffering from it, but yeah. for everybody around that everybody person. Around. And you're you're compl- you become completely dependent, and the life that everybody's living is completely changes. And especially mm-hmm. if you don't have resources for nurses and right. different kind of you know extra yeah. care, you know it's, it's the family that's affected in sure. that way. Yeah. Oof. Hey, sorry to that's, to run into that. No, no, uh, that's, that's I I think that's a um, it right the meaning of life or the value of life isn't always ha- a happiness conversation no, right no uh most definitely not <laughs> um i i want to get i do want to get back to sorry i, I know your time I'm, i keep running into people who've got limited time I, I keep doing this to people putting the mic in front of you but how, how are you doing on time i'm okay yeah we're good. yeah we're good it's like 11 30 right now yeah what time are you? at least there's the dog okay. um no, i think we have at least at least 45 minutes, maybe. maybe okay, longer. cool. Yeah, I think to keep fact, talking before, before yeah. you have to leave. Yeah, in fact, I, it's possible that um, having to leave at noon is no longer a problem. One o'clock might be my cutoff, but uh, okay. I'm also conscious of your time as well, too. So, yeah, here. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I am not particularly conscious of my own time. <laughs> I'm open. I'm open okay, so. cool, cool. Yeah. Um, well, I want to get back to um, the wiser amuser because that, that is fascinating to me what you're, you're creating these worlds and writing all this. this um, this wonderful poetry, your book that's come out. It's a combo of your, um, and do you have a date when it's going to publish? No, no. Okay. No, no. I've, I've, I've self published it up to this point. Yeah. And, um, there's other pieces of the puzzle that I'm working on before I think I'm, I'm ready to release that. But, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, it's technically available, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not marketing it. <laughs> You're right not pushing now. it, <laughs> but it's, it's a combo of your photography and your poetry mm. and it, and you very early in the book addressed your muse. Mm. It's for your boys, yeah. right? It's for your kids. Mm-hmm. That I think is. Um, let's let's back up a little bit. You have two, yeah, two sons, boys, two yeah. boys, and your wife. Your current wife has two two kids, kids. Uh-huh. two girls, uh, boy and a girl. Boy and a girl. So we're seventeen, fourteen, thirteen, and eleven. And yeah. the eleven year old is the girl. <laughs> so you are in uh, a sea of developing humans, yeah, <laughs> and you're creating um, art. And, and insight to share with them and then ostensibly anyone else mm. with whom it's shared. When you're when you're doing all this stuff and you're and you're making art and it, and the hiking is also a huge part of it, that you're sharing this mm. passion for the outdoors. Do you think about um, how this is gonna relate when you're gone, like when you die, or do you think about being able to witness the changes in people or, or witness the impact on people now yeah all of the above i, I yeah. would say it's a the the subtitle of the wiser the, the of book one wiser muser is grow grow your whole life and you can look at that in two ways you know you you can grow for the duration you know from from here on for the rest of your life until you die continue to grow but there's also grow it in its capacity so grow every aspect of your life as well and um 
you know, I kind of break that down in kind of four areas of, of space, time, relationships, and self-care. And so, um, and and I guess, you know, to back up, you know, the, the wiser muser is, it's it's not me, you know, I, I am not the wise, I'm not saying I'm the wiser muser, but there's a wiser muser in me, and 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 my journey and my approach is to is to tap into my my own wiser muser at any given time. Um, inquire about about what about how quality time happens in my life and how I how I relate to to, to quality time and what I consider quality time to be, and and then to maximize at any given moment, the opportunity to um, experience quality time. And I feel like like my wiser muser is my guide. It's my internal best. It's me becoming the best me. You have a wiser muser in you, Andrew. I want my children to learn how to tap into their own wiser muser and to check themselves. It's like, a, you know, as a parent growing up or uh, raising kids in Colorado, you know, with, I mean, as if just life in general isn't enough, you know, marijuana is legal, you know, and, and, and so, what kinds of conversations are you going to have with your children to help them make good decisions? They're going to be exposed to these things. I wasn't growing up in Indiana, you know, at all. Do you, um, do you smoke marijuana now or? Occasionally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Only when I'm alone with someone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, now to preface that it's, it's, uh, um, it's, it's deliberate when I do. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so the conversation with the boys is, is, and I have and I have a twin brother who has sons too, and that's been extremely helpful. Around you know the the joke has always been at some point our kids are going to be at a high school party and they're going to you know smell it and they're going to be like hey what is that says, that's marijuana that smells like my dad's garage you know <laughs> wait a minute <laughs> um, but that um, literally happened to my wife did it <laughs> the first time she smelled it she's like oh that's what this is my, my dad yeah. this changes yeah, everything that's great. Right? Um, but but we can have a conversation about it in that it's you know it's it's right in with the topic of alcohol and you know sugar and caffeine yeah. and, and and whatever that pay attention to how it affects you pay attention to how it feels in the moment pay attention to the consequences later you know mm-hmm. how's your memory how's your, whatever you know do yeah. you get in trouble are you good you know did you say things maybe that you wish you wouldn't have said did you do things maybe you wish you wouldn't have done um, and so. Um, it's gotten, it's turned into, you know, an easier conversation to have with, you know, when, when you kind of put it in with the, you know, with the big picture in my own experience, being, being able to be honest about how it's affected me. And when I've, when I've gotten to the point where I thought, eh, it's a bit much, this isn't, I'm not getting the results that I really want to be getting in my life. And that's, again, that goes into that checking in with the, my internal wiser muser. And mm-hmm. my hope is that for them throughout their life, for their whole life, that they continue to grow by having a relationship with that part of them that knows what's best for them, that, yeah. that, that is self-caring, that takes relationships and really tries to grow relationships and, and tries to maximize the quality of not only their time, but also the spaces in which they occupy. Yeah. I mean, self-care is so many things. It's <laughs> clearly not just like doing your push-ups and eating yeah. vegetables, like listening to yourself. Cause uh, I, a lot of people talk about this, um, that we are conditioned from an early age to not listen to our bodies or not listen to ourselves. You know, you're, you're told here's when you get up and when you go to bed, here's what you're meant to do. Here are the tasks that you have to reform. But if you don't want that, 
as a person, you're made to feel bad about that. Mm. Like, I didn't want to go to college. I went to college because it was an expectation upon me. And, and I believe me, I don't want to discount the value of college or mm-hmm. a higher education, but there's there's amount of listening to yourself that's valuable. I don't, I mean, yeah, I don't have a high-paying job, usually, <laughs> but sometimes I do. <laughs> and I have access to things that if I would have just gone to college and followed a path, I don't know that I would have had access to. Mm. I have access to different parts of my happiness mm. and to wellness. And I feel, uh, I don't feel like, <laughs> oh, um, that I have to pay back a debt for mm. my education. I feel mm. like I'm constantly being educated. Mm. You know, uh, so, And it's in that listening to to myself and not others that, you know, may or may not always be a good idea, but it's at least I'm accountable only to myself for that and not not anyone else. So I like that you're encouraging your kids to to listen to themselves and to know, you know, to cultivate that knowing what's best for you type yeah. of attitude. Yeah, so, and, to, and to not get caught up into an, an inherited belief system yeah. that, that they're that they're making choices that that they're actually not making right. on their own. Yeah. And and there's a I think it's that's that that self-care component is to be able to s- distinguish between what is you know what what you inherited and what you yeah. chose. So break that down for me if you don't mind. You got space, time, uh self-care. You did self-care. What was the other? Relationship. Relationships, yeah. 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 So, I mean, space is the, you know, the space you keep, you know, it's your home, it's your work, it's your car, it's the town, you know, wherever you live. Um, it's um, where you go, like when you say, all right, I've got, I've got a day, what am I going to do with my day? It's where you go with that day, it's what you do. And so time is, you know, how you spend that time, what you do when you're in that space. So for me going hiking, you know, I, I can maximize the quality of, of a day. For me, if I'm um, in all of these, if, you know, relationship is alone or with someone, you know, um, self-care is mental, emotional, physical, spiritual. Um, so for me, you know, if, if I wake up at, you know, two hours before sunrise and I get and I pack my stuff and I drive up into the mountains and I'm and I put my feet on the ground and I'm walking on a trail at sunrise, let's say I'm in Rocky Mountain National Park, and I spend the next seven or eight hours, you know, lake hopping and um, taking pictures of reflections in the water, and, I, and I've packed cheese, you know, really nice 
goat cheese and crackers and, and pistachios, and I've got a really fine quality dark chocolate um, bar in my in my pack, and I've got a, a, a honey crisp, an organic honey crisp apple, you know, and and I'm satisfying these, you know, my and nourishing myself in that way, and I'm and I, whether I'm alone or with somebody, I'm having great conversations, and I'm exploring ideas and and sharing and asking questions, um, and really getting getting into some juicy and vulnerable things and and you know you put all of that you know you spend your time in an, an extraordinary place with with in, with people that you choose not you know that because i think as we get older what i one of the things i'm learning is that time is so much more valuable that that you really want to maximize the quality of that time if you're going to have it with another well first of all you want to maximize it that if you're going to spend it alone boy you better be some you better be interesting enough to spend time alone <laughs> and peace have an, enough peace and aliveness in yourself that it's it's worth it you know you look forward to it and and if you're going to be with someone else you know you really want to you know dive in and um which i i personally would enjoy it if you just stick around for a while because <laughs> uh, going for a hike it's a yeah, whole sounds... other whole other thing yeah um and and so you know ending that ending that hike with you know at, at the car i've got a cooler with a really nice beer in it and i've got chairs and you sit out and you take your shoes off and and you have a little conversation and then you roll into town and find a good place and you have good food and another beer and and you, you get home and you take a nap you know and then you wake up and you go through your pictures of the day and you go into your whatever you wrote and the thoughts that you had and and you spend the rest of the day with somebody i mean that is that's the wiser muser for me personally that's yeah. the wiser muser at work and all along the all along the way you're open to, to to for things that you know for the weather to kind of shift your plans or to run into somebody that you didn't expect to run into and maybe you're suddenly you're spending a day with somebody doing something different and so um that's I think the idea that if you know the wiser amuser in you uh, is there for you and available for you to to pay attention to and if you listen and if you um, continue to explore then you can maximize the quality of your time for the rest of your life yeah. and you know it it just becomes a natural thing yeah and you can bring that to others as well you know so that's the idea of the wiser muser, and that's where the the poetry and the aphorisms and all of them have some sort of you know the ideas to guide is to give you some sort of a gauge and an inquiry. It's like each page, you open the page, you read it, and you close it, and you have something to think about for a while. Mm -hmm. And um, um, and so, and we go back, you know, to the, to the writing stuff where things just kind of flow. Yeah. Sometimes I feel just I'm just receiving. There's a lot of things in there that that I it hit. I wrote it down, and I looked at it, and I thought, well, that's done. Like. Uh, practice being selfless without being yourself less. I was just walking one day, yeah. and practice being selfless without being yourself less hit. I wrote it down, and I had I wasn't even thinking about um, anything in particular. Yeah, it just kind of hit, and yeah. so things like that happen. Just make it, it makes me feel that I have a certain responsibility. Hmm. That if I'm going to be tapped into this kind of stuff, that there's a responsibility to share it in some way and to develop it in a way that's actually meaningful for others and maybe useful. Right. I think it's perfect that you have been of the many things I think you've done in your life. I think we share that that we've had many occupations, yeah. but you tend to gravitate towards guiding and the fact that you're currently a concierge. Yeah. <laughs> you know that you're guiding and sharing seem to be kind of a through line in in your expression mm. throughout throughout this. I mean, you, you're writing. Uh, and in a way, a guidebook of shared insights. 
that uh, and, and your your ambition is to be uh, uh, to, to put together some sort of hiking guiding sort of company, which I, I really like the the, the notion of um, with a minstrel. Well, they, yeah, Brett, following <laughs> no, you around. Brett, Brett. <laughs> Brett. Oh, you, yeah. well, that's just a whole other. I bet yeah. you'd be a good one on that too. <laughs> well, I just I love the idea of people being because um, they're you know we're this is this might be seeming like a little bit of a stretch, but we're in a point where um, psychedelics are being talked about as as proper once again being talked about as proper treatment for uh, mental illness or or P- just PTSD not, yeah PTSD mm-hmm. uh, using it as a, a marriage counseling uh, to as a tool for for therapy which I think is very uh, very beautiful and I've, I've recently seen that maps you know about maps the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies I think is what it's called okay. but they're they're in you know phase three trials for for uh, psychedelic or for psilocybin treating PTSD <gasps> Yeah, it's a huge thing, and they've they've recently published a guidebook for people guiding others through a psychedelic experience. Mm. You know, which I think um, the idea of having a knowledgeable but mostly um, empathetic guide is something that in our our very individualistic culture that we've we've drifted away from, and it's good to see any attempt to bring us back to that sort of thing that to to humble oneself to a guide is uh, it's a bigger ask than I think most people realize. Mm. You know, particularly a guy like myself and, and a woman like my wife Tiffany, where we just we're out on our own weird little journey. Anytime we can get a guide to show us something, we're so privileged and and, and welcoming of that. You know, someone who lives say in Homer, Alaska. These people took us for a walk. On this beautiful hike, and they're not originally from there, but from having gone with guides, they know the flora, the fauna, mm. they know some of the geology, they know all this history. It's fantastic to just shut the hell up, get out of your own way, get your opinions and your thoughts, and be unencumbered by your own opinion, and just hear what someone else has to say, and 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 let them guide you through an experience. Mm-hmm. So whether it's you know on a psychedelic experience or on a hike or on a river, um, having an experienced guide is such a beautiful, beautiful thing to have. What, do you know where that comes from in you? That impulse to guide. I think it it goes back. It started for me with a you know I when I when I first started guiding. It it was. You know, I, I came from Indiana, where I was again, where I didn't, I didn't, didn't experience the outdoors. It wasn't, you know, we were, we were always outside playing, but it wasn't like we were hiking on trails or going into wilderness areas and doing rivers or anything like that. But I think there was a combination of I was discovering so much newness and and again in the people and the places and kind of the time that I was spending that. And in myself, you know, it was a whole world of myself that I was exploring that I hadn't explored. And I have a, and I had a twin brother that wasn't experiencing these things. Mm-hmm. And so I think for a lot of it, the, the, the paying close enough attention to everything that I was experiencing so that I could actually tell him about it and describe it to him in a way that he would get um, as much as he could without being there, that just started happening. So as, as a desire to share with him, having mm-hmm. an identical twin, it's just, you just... 
that's part of your nature. And yeah. so the more I did that, then the more I was, um, um, I think getting away from what was familiar in my childhood. And so, um, you know, anytime I would go home and see friends that were still, you know, in Indiana and everything, um, it was also different for them, you know, and so to be able to tell stories and everything was always, it just, it was fun to tell stories because it seemed like it was entertaining to other people to hear mm -hmm. some of the places I'd been or people I'd met. Um, and then I think over, over time as you, I had, I had really good guide training, some really good mentors and some really good examples. And I think the more that you, the more that you guide, the more you take responsibility for other people. And it's not just for their safety, but for the quality of their time. Yeah. You know, they're paying money to come out and have an experience that they have never had before that they could not have had without you. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that I take that to certainly for guiding also at the concierge desk, people are coming to Colorado. They're, you know, even if they've been there before, you know, the, if, if there's an opportunity to, to bring a, something special that they might that they would not have have done on their own yeah. you know and you can ex expose them to something that they would not have otherwise seen um that's just that's just that's so fulfilling that yes. no paycheck you know can yeah. you know it's great it's important i think to get you know to get a paycheck of sure. course but but it's um but it's invaluable and it says every time I take somebody on a trail that I've never been on, but it's their first time, I get to experience it all over again, yes. brand new, like a beginner, and yes. and to to do that through another person mm -hmm. is uh, it never gets old. Guided by enthusiasm, yeah, is a great way to get around, you know. Yeah, and uh -huh. I think it's a great way to learn for you. Like, I, I'm no teacher. Of anything, I don't know. I'm qualified to teach necessarily, anything, but <laughs> but the the times that I have learned something well, it's by explaining it to someone who does not understand it at all. So it causes you to further and further and further break it down. Yeah, I think uh, Douglas Adams wrote like the best way to learn something is to have to explain it to a slow and dim-witted pupil. <laughs> Uh, I have certainly <laughs> probably helped a lot of teachers in my, in my way. I might be that dim-witted one. <laughs> I've certainly been a good student for that as far as teaching my teacher, you know, how to, you know. but um, in, in the, in your context, what you're doing on a trail or on a river or any sort of with your book, it's, it's taking your own enthusiasm and distilling it into this form that, um, honors the questions that, that people are asking and that are coming up in this mm -hmm. new environment and like taking in your own enthusiasm and embracing theirs and creating this whole new thing by sort of mutually uh, beneficial enthusiasm for, for an environment. Yeah. I think, a, I think a sense of humility comes with that too, that if you, I, I, I think that, that if there's an experience, I think when I was young as a guide, I was so inexperienced, and I it was I thought that it was so important that I knew every I knew how to answer every question. I had this anxiety um, that I felt like I had to know everything, and I think that caused me to talk at people mm. as opposed to really to people. And it was very difficult for me, and maybe even for a period of time, I didn't even admit that I didn't know something. Right. Now, you know, it's a if I don't know the answer to something, let's write it down. It's just, oh man, that's an, I'm, I would like to know that too, you know? Yeah. And so there's a, there's a humility in, I know I just took two 60 year old 
oncologists, you know, they've been buddies since they were in residency. They get together every few years to do a trip. We just did a five-day backpacking trip in Rocky Mountain National Park. I learned so much from those guys. That's great. They've been to places that I've never been to, and um, but but we were in a place that I knew. And um, and by the second day, once we kind of figured out who each of us was, it was like you know a bunch of friends on a backpacking trip. Yeah. And for me, I think that's the magic. If if you can if you can make that connection with people where you know your your authority is only as far as the fact that you are res- that you are the one who's taking responsibility yeah. and i'm going to be the hardest working one here but we're all we're all in this together yeah and um it's possible that i trip over a rock and i bust my ankle and i'm going to need you guys's help you know and yeah. so um when you're out there like that there is a certain um trust that you know as much trust as they put in you as a guide you're putting your trust in other people and so you have to really figure out very quickly where their strengths are where their weaknesses are and yeah. and find your space and role to to make it a good experience it's like what we were talking about earlier uh, i told you about wio the world yeah. uh eskimo yeah. indian olympics mm. that um that concept of competition isn't meant to defeat your enemy or your opponent it's meant to make everyone a little bit better mm. you know that seems like you're you're motivation on an uh, expedition or a hike or whatever it is to to, to rise yeah. all the all the boats when to find flow find my, flow, my yeah. favorite favorite subject in college was uh optimal it was a sports psychology class and we had a segment on optimal flow hmm. um, which is a a study that has now become it was originally i think developed uh, Sent Mahai is the scientist that really coined the phrase was studying how athletes found flow and like mm-hmm. that and i think the found the zone and um, are you familiar with the concept of flow? Boy, it's climbers that I see it in the most. Yeah. Climbers yeah. And, and a lot of, you know, like uh, climbers, surfers, skiers, and, and people on rivers, kayakers, mm-hmm. boaters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm familiar. Yeah. yeah in, this, in, the, in the field itself. And I think this is, this is a, it's, I, it does, it's not surprising that it's gone from the study of optimizing sports performance to just life. Yeah. And uh, yeah. you know, I, think, I think a lot of life coaches, you know, if, they, if they've studied flow, you might, you might, and they really are into it. You know, that's a life coach to consider. But uh, flow is this balance between ability and challenge. That when you're, when you're a bit where, where ability and challenge meet, mm-hmm. um, then you find yourself in the state of flow. If your ability is higher than the challenge, the result is boredom or complacency. Right. right? If the challenge is higher than the ability, then we're talking about anxiety and, and whatnot. And so the idea from a coaching stand, and this is I, when I was in college, initially was kind of thinking, well, maybe I'm going to be a coach or a physical therapist. And, um, but this is a way to, but for my own, in my own life, I've, I feel like it's, it's something I've just incorporated, this, the idea of the wiser amuser. The wiser amuser, maybe another way to say it is the job of the wiser amuser is to maximize flow in life. Hmm. And um, I think over the years since my divorce and, you know, my processing and of, of rechecking myself and looking at my life in a way, in a, in a critical way that I had and just sort of rebuilding, you know, dismantling what I had built and rebuilding in a very conscious way. Um, I'm finding more and more that I'm creating flow in the different areas mm-hmm. of my life, relationships and how I'm taking care of myself. And, and, um, you know, a lot of that is, is, is how I'm relating to the other, the outside forces of my life and how I have to find my place in those things and yeah. again, have humility, but also contribute and bring value and, and, uh, um, and contribute, and I think that's if I can maintain that mode, you mm-hmm. know, uh, for the rest of my life. That's 
that's and if I can help my kids somehow check yes. into that as well, that's. Mm. You said something a minute ago that um, that strikes me as a, a memory I had from kind of early on. I don't know how you, what your thoughts are about religiosity or, or God or heaven and hell. Mm. Sorry to suddenly take that giant shift. No, but we can talk about platheism. Yeah, <laughs> platheism, yes. <laughs> but uh, you said something about your ability being disproportionate to the challenge at hand mm. creates a sense of boredom. I always That struck me when I was really young when we talked about the idea of heaven. I was raised Catholic, mm. right? Me too. And, and, and hell... Didn't bother me so much. I think about hell more now that I'm a nearly fully recovered Catholic. <laughs> but um, but the idea of heaven, to me, it seemed like it didn't seem plausible. It seemed very, like, I don't feel bored ever. I feel always yeah. kind of challenged by everything because I'm very uncertain. Mm. And I think it's tension and things not totally being easy that make things interesting. But if heaven is this like meant to be this perfect state of final completion where everything's easy and it's all pleasure and whatever, it's not interesting mm. and it's boring. It's like, well, wait, that sounds hellish to me. Yeah. But that's the concept of heaven. Maybe you know, it made me question when I was young: Am I bad? Maybe I'm bad. Maybe I'm like evil or something. You know, like huh. it fucked with me as in a weird way as a, as a young man. But yeah, and I was just hearing you explain your idea of flow and ability meeting challenge in an interesting way creating an interest in things uh-huh. related to me in a strange way to heaven and hell. Wow. So maybe that's that's what keeps us interesting is our inability to, or our, our strive to achieve or to accomplish any given task, whether it's some sort of cognitive thing or an actual physical challenge or whatever it is. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, that was the, I think I was raised Catholic as well, and, and having a twin brother with this sort of matter-of-fact connectedness in, in, in the world and to everybody. When we were young, we were so excited about going to church and so excited about going to Sunday school and, yeah. and you know, really sort of getting a glimpse into this. And we would ask lots of questions. And, and over time, we became frustrated. Mm-hmm. And because, because we were, more and more our questions were being answered with um, well, because it just is, because it because it says so in the Bible. Right. Well, but but that's not, you know. And, and then there was this sort of like, well, that's I, the revealed truth. But it doesn't seem like <laughs> it's saying what you're saying. It's saying, you know. And and so, I you know, eventually we became, you know, rambunctious and got kicked out of Sunday school because it just it just happened naturally. I think. But yeah. um, I think that a lot of the disappointment in in our religious learning as kids was just in that we were so excited to really have a real conversation and start to dive into those things. And so we really left that. We really left religion as we were kids. And it really hasn't, I think in my adult life, you know, I come back into, I'm, I, I, I want to read about all religions and I'm just curious about, you know, what, what everybody's saying. And we're yeah. all trying to, you know, this is the whole, it's a cliche at this point, you know, everybody's saying the same thing, but coming at it culturally from a different but it got in it got me into so the the wiser amuser is is part of a big is part of a story the the mm-hmm. the book that i've produced I, I produced it because the characters within this one particular story one one character actually carries the book comes you know the, the book comes into his hands mm-hmm. it's a huge it's the the book itself is sort of the the, the center of a particular crisis and and he has sort of the one original copy and yeah. um 
but unlike a Bible, for example, so it's it's essentially like if clowns had a Bible, you know, <laughs> the wiser musers is what it's called. But it's it's unlike a Bible. It's it's subject to change. It's subject to, to yeah. growth and evolving and learning and and um, and but there's this sort of the underlying. It's probably a little bit more like a Buddhist philosophy than it is about a religion per se. Um, in that. The wiser muser is sort of like a Tao Te Ching, in a sense. It's an expression, a poetic expression of a philosophy. And the philosophy, the underlying philosophy is this platheism. Yeah. And platheism is sort of this idea that, you know, kids on a playground, you know, what, what truth, what reality they should, no matter where you come from. You get a bunch mm -hmm. of three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds on a playground. There are certain, it's like um, Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten by Robert Fulgham. Have you read that one? No. But oh, I'm... you got yeah, yeah. to yeah, pick that one up. I mean, his writing is just, he's one of my best, one of the most influential writers that I've ever experienced. But Everything I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, his, that whole idea was that it's all there, you know, and it's simple. And then as we grow older, we, you know, again, we, we're in our intuition when we're little, and then we, you know, we start connecting dots on our thoughts, and those lead to beliefs, and those lead to opinions. And unfortunately, once people get to opinions, at least in our culture, it seems more and more, and you're seeing it everywhere, yeah. is that everybody's just living in their opinion brain, and and they're not connecting with their intuition anymore, and they're not forming new thoughts, and they're not uh, challenging their beliefs, you know, right, and so. The idea of platheism is that you're always exploring every one of those areas. You're you're challenging your opinions and your beliefs, and you're creating new thoughts, and you're checking into your intuition. And there's a full relationship with all those things. So that any child from any culture, it's it's like you get to the humanity, to the base humanity of all mm -hmm. of us. That what are the rules? What are the things that work? And so that underlying philosophy that the wiser muser is trying to express is really this idea of platheism. Mm -hmm. And an atheist can be a platheist. All right. And a and a Catholic and a Muslim, they can all be platheists. Yeah. And it's the playground where we work out our differences. <laughs> um, my friend Charis uh, was just telling me about the uh, the Hindu concept of Leela. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. It is the idea of the play oh. and that this is a play and that everything is being molded by this giant cosmic child. You know, uh, and yeah, it was kind of cool that the idea of just play, you know, that it is a play and we are at play. And um, there's some interesting etymology or yeah, etymology into the, the, the word play, the idea, the concept of a play or to play mm -hmm. um, that, that makes that all kind of. Uh, curious, you know, what is play and what isn't, you know, where does the dividing line come from playing and working and did we just make it all up? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're enjoying it, like that, that Confucius thing, if, if you love your work or you love your job, you never work a day in your life, you know? Yeah. Mm. Is it not all play if you've got the right perspective? Um, yeah, there's an know. aspect of joy that comes out of that, right? And... I'd be curious to know what you have to think. So one of the one of the, the things that I, as I as I continue to kind of work on the story and play with the idea of platheism, I wonder sometimes what people you know say that if I say, all right, when I say platheism to you, what does that mean to you? Thank you. 
anything that remotely sounds like atheism. It, I've, I've been conditioned my whole life up until a certain age to think that atheism was bad. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, and, you know, we were told in, in Catholic school, and I went to Catholic school from kindergarten till 12th grade. Wow. Yeah. I was fully in Memphis. In Memphis, yeah. Well, in, in Mississippi, North Mississippi, and then in Memphis. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, uh, I don't regret it because we, we had religious studies throughout the whole thing. And I think the best way to make a skeptic is to teach them all the religions. So we learned religious history of, you know, everyone Catholics, Buddhists, Muslims, Sikhs. We learned quite a bit about it. And it, it made me. I think the skeptic that I am today, mm-hmm. uh, and, and very curious about all of them, and very doubtful of all of them mm. at the same time. Um, certainty turns me off. Anyone to tell me that they're certain or they've even revealed something, it's a turn off. And I, I, I mm. personally see the difference between a religion and science as methodology. That's the one thing that one has that the other does not. There's methodologies in science, whereas in religion, it comes from uh, faith. Faith, yeah, which, you know, we can get into all that. That's, mm. I'd rather not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, to, so to, to me, to hear the word playtheism is, um, I love the idea of play. It's one of my favorite things. It's literally what we are doing right now. Mm. I'm playing, pretending like I've got a radio show. <laughs> i got a fake radio show. I've got the fancy headphones. I get to pretend I'm a poet, but i got something interesting for you to even talk to me about. You know, uh, play for me has always been it. Like, I've always looked forward to play. Um, anytime I've been in a, a psychedelic situation, um, I feel like an animal mm. playing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's it's weird. I've, uh, I have this very childlike but very animistic sort of thing going on. Mm-hmm. So play is very important to me. Um, my, my brother puts it a way where when, you know, whether it's whatever substance might, might be, whether it's, you know, we're talking about psychedelics or, you know, marijuana or whatever whatever those things he he said once he's like it takes me out of the equation (laughs) and and i think we're talking about ego and when you pull that out like when you're fully immersed in play you are fully present yeah and all of your you know preconceived notions and that's what you see in children on the playground that's what you see in them they're just fully immersed they're in a pretend world yeah and you got parents that are sitting on a bench and there's a there's you know logs that are bordering the you know the playground and the parents are hanging out drinking their coffee talking and the kids are in a canyon of a whole other world right and there's a bridge that crosses over those logs and that and the 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 drop off below the bridge is a thousand feet, you know, and yeah. on the other side is slides into big yeah. pools of water, you know. It's yeah. just that 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 magic, unlimited imaginary imaginary world mm-hmm. where you can work through all kinds of oh yeah things. We, we, I just spent a bunch of time with Mabel, uh, <gasps> Brett's three year old daughter, who was just I mean an angelic little hilarious thing, and we were singing these songs in the car on the way to the grocery store yesterday that was so much fun <laughs> and i got so into it like we got in the grocery store and i'm amped up like a little kid who's had a shitload of candy or something i'm just we're like, i'm like driving the grocery cart all crazy high through the on store. <laughs> yeah just like and i was singing that song i had that freaking song on my head this morning like uh, it, just so much fun and so when i think of so to your playtheism um like I said, it, the the idea of anything related to atheism still, even to this day, and having read many books about it and, and considering myself something of a skeptic, 
um, it it still hits this weird little button for me that I can't just de- de- decouple it from something that I've perceived as wrong, mm-hmm. you know. But play is one of my most favorite things. Mm-hmm. So it's it's what I was saying about the thing that's lacking in heaven, mm-hmm. the, like the concept of heaven is there is conflict, which makes it interesting mm-hmm. that it's got this like unfortunate negative baggage that I carry culturally with me mm. and this beautiful because if I if, if I was just playing all the time you know if there weren't some drudgery or something that I was trying to avoid at least <laughs> then it play wouldn't be that interesting mm-hmm. so th- that thing the idea of playtheism to me I hear interest and something that's just Okay. Engagement, right? Yeah, let's try it out. Yeah. Well, and it's a play on, but obviously not to be confused with, of course, atheism, but mm-hmm. also, uh, there's the letter A, you know, theism. Right. So atheism and atheism. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the, you know, the theism itself includes all religions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a doctrine or some sort of a... Um, it's an interesting concept. Religious conceptual God. thought. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, the, so, the, you know, the theocratic thing, the theism, that there is a... Ism, <laughs> right? That is it. Right. The ultimate ism. You know? I, I I think that the, the ultimate ism. is the wiser muser within each of us. Hmm. You know, and so that's that's where it kind of circles around for me is that it's not about the it's not about the absence of a god, nor is it about the presence of a god. It's hmm. both and neither. The idea hmm. is that is that how through some sort of playful, you know, and it's not just going out on a playground, going hiking. It's you know, if you're going going out to dinner. You know, it's yeah. how you choose to spend, how you choose to engage in the moment, yeah. either alone or with someone. If you go to a concert, you know, how do you choose to engage in that? Right. If you're going to take a psychedelic, how do you choose to spend that time and engage mm-hmm. within that experience? Um, and I think it's the, the the developing a relationship with and continuing to grow the wiser muser within you is is the way I think to sort of maximize the quality of your time with your while you're here. And I'm, you know, I mean, I say all these things. I'm, I want to, I'm curious to know what a, you know, a black man who grew up in Biloxi, Mississippi, poor or wealthy, or grew up in, you know, a, a, an Asian who grew up in New Jersey, or I want to, yeah. I would just, I'm so curious to know what their process might be like to engage with, to inquire and then start to get to know and develop the wiser muser within themselves. And how do, where does that lead them? Yeah. Because some people might say, well, my wiser muser says I go home and I turn on the Simpsons and I drink a beer and eat some donuts, you know, and that's right. me living my best life. Right. And I, and I think ultimately from a, from a perspective of a, the purity of the platheist is I'm not going to judge that. Yeah. All right. That's your choice. Well, you, so one thing that can get confused in all this from an outside perspective is that you're, it, play and if you just if you're just looking casually at kids it seems chaotic and crazy mm. that's not your bag you're not talking about chaotic uh total abandonment because you are um you, you we talked a little earlier before we got on the mics about orienteering mm. and orienting oneself mm-hmm. so playing you know it doesn't matter where you're heading with play but where you are and where you begin is kind of important you know so it's not like you're just talking like just drop a lit mat in your pants match in your pants and hope for the best you know you're 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 it's responsible to an end where you know at least where you've begun mm-hmm. and you know where home is and where you are at the moment and you have awareness of others 
yes. and and an appreciation and a respect for them yeah. as well. So can can you? I hate to ask you to repeat anything, but we were, right. when we were talking over the delicious bagel and eggs uh, <laughs> about uh, about orienting oneself, you, know, you related it not just to to hiking, but to uh, you know to a number of aspects in your life. Do you mind sharing your your thoughts on? orienting i well i think for one as a as a father i think my number one responsibility as a father is to orient my children and i have sons and um but now you know there's a daughter in the house as well and um you know mothers and fathers have different roles and and for me in fact i'll tell you a story this is this is kind of one way that that is has helped me to kind of develop this is that not long after my divorce, it was um, I planned a little road trip with my boys, sort of a nice boys trip. We we're going to go and spend some a uh, few days in Aspen, uh, a few hours away from here, with some friends for a weekend. It was between Christmas and New Year's, and we had just had Christmas. And I told them we were going to do this trip, but you know, we had a room full of like loot, you know, like DVDs and Legos and things and that they hadn't even opened yet and i we woke up in the morning and i was like all right guys we're gonna hit the road this evening you know make sure you start getting your stuff together and suddenly you know this 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 vision that i had of having you know this creating quality time and really this is this is kind of where a lot of the the wiser muser building blocks started to occur um my intention was to have this incredibly positive um engaging road trip with my boys road trips it's a road trip i mean when you hear road trip ah you just get excited and everything but suddenly you know again they had all this stuff in the house and i'm telling them that we're going to go drive it's 19 degrees outside and we're going to drive to a place that they've never been to meet people that they've never met and and suddenly it's just impassioned resistance to this road trip and I, you know, I was trying to talk sense and, and logic and, and nothing was happening. And it got to the point where I was like, I don't, all right, I don't care. We're going, you know, just deal with it, you know. So now they're just resigned and pissed. And I spent that day just racking my brain. How do I turn this utterly negative thing that should be positive into a positive situation? So um, I'm, I was loading the car and I remember this conversation I had had with another dad who had just came back from a three-week trip with his son to Mexico. And one of the things he s said was that during those three weeks, he never had to say no to his kids and, or to his son. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, wow, you know, we kind of had a general, you know, agenda and everything. And anytime we ran into something new, we had a conversation and, you know, we, we, we worked it out together. He goes, I, I never had to say no. I was like, that's what I want. I want a trip with my boys. I just don't have to say no to them. Yeah. So loading the car, they get in the car and I'm climbing into the car. And just suddenly I was like, I turned to the boys and I said, all right guys, for the next four days, I'm not going to say no to you. I'm only going to say yes. And I hadn't thought this through. So it was just, it was like, a, it was, the, it was a good idea. And they look at me and Kai was 10 and Traeger was six at the time. They're like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm, I'm only going to say yes to you. I can't say no to everything. Yes. Can we have candy? Yes. Can we have ice cream? Yes. Can we have toys? And I'm like, all right, this is, all right. So yes, but we've got a couple of rules, a couple of guidelines here. First, we have a budget. Yeah, I need a budget. Um, and we all got to work on that budget together. And as soon as we hit that budget, you know, we're, we're done. Well, how much is the budget? I was like, About 50 bucks a day. Okay. And I said, all right, two is... As your father, I am responsible for your safety and your health and your okayness. And so if you ask for something that raises my concern, I'm going to raise a yellow flag and we're going to have a conversation. And 
and I'm going to try, I'm going to talk about alternatives and everything. And they're like, okay, so what if we have the conversation and we still want what we're asking for? And I said, wow, as long as, as long as you were, you're safe and healthy and, and okay, then I have to say yes. And they're like, okay. I was like, and they're like, what else? And I was like, I couldn't think of anything else. I was like, that's it. I said, are we good? Yeah. And completely 180 degree turn of the, of the entire energy in the room. Dad, turn on the radio. You pick the first song. And the next four days, we, we've, it's, it's, we've coined it the road trip to Yesville. And we've done several since. I learned so much about each of them individually. I learned so much about myself as a father. How often I've said no because I was either lazy or just being a dick. You know, I was selfish. Um, and I was forced to say yes to things that I would not have said yes to if we didn't have Yesville, you know, structure. Um, I think we learned so much about them as just individuals, you know, how Kai responded to having absolute yesness and how Traeger responded. Kai's like a creature of justice. Traeger's total creature of pleasure wasn't going to, was going to push the budget every day. Kai realized his share of the budget was involved. He had to start. So Kai started actually taking over Traeger, who was, you know, six, a little creature, to the point that I didn't really, I raised some yellow flags you know, we had conversations. I, I developed through that trip that changed my parenting mm. and that has guided my parenting in so many ways where wow. it's, it's helped me to create, keep that balance and flow between giving them autonomy, freedom, mm-hmm. but also creating limitations. And then they've learned also to set their own boundaries and they've also learned to, you know, try new things and everything. And so, um, and so we talk about, um, Wait, why did I start telling that story? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm telling that because there's a... What was the original question that you asked? Was, I have no idea. Um, I got so wrapped up. I'm like thinking about 19 degrees and a road trip and a car with some kids. It sounds so fun. Oh, road trip to Yesville. Actually, I, I wrote something about it. I'll share it with you. Yeah. Road trip to Yesville. It became, it became a guiding... Um, um, uh, structure for my parenting as a father and so um oh so orienteering orient orientation no it's good no it's good it it always comes around so apropos (laughs) that we got disoriented in our conversation exactly (laughs) just a little just a little uh digression yeah let me show you how it's done yeah so so i think yeah it was my initial so as a father my job as a father is to is to orient my kids and and if i can give them you know a you know a yellow flag and a budget you know and otherwise autonomy to really go out into the world and and and, and create and explore and try things mm. um but they've got that they've got a they've got a yellow flag to be able to have a conversation to, to check with themselves to make sure that they're going to be safe and they're going to be healthy and they're going to be alive mm-hmm. you know here and then they have a budget that kind of keeps them responsible um I, you really can you can do a lot with that in life yeah. and it's a great metaphor and so and but, but it also works for me and it, it helps it's helping me um it's helping me say suddenly I'm I, I, again I was I said yes to things that I would not have said yes to and it turned out it was great that I really allowed them to teach me some things that I yeah. would not uh, and experience some things that I would not have experienced if it was just me and it goes back to being a guide you yeah. know I, I gave my my I, that gave them the power to guide me yeah and the things that I discovered and learned not and the things that I experienced but also the things that I learned about myself were just priceless and yeah. timeless and uh, magic.
I was going to say it sounded guide-like because, you know, as a, as a guide, you're not there to say necessarily yes or no. You're just there to, to sort of, well, here's where this path goes. You know, Hold I'm space, right? Yeah, I'm trying to keep you safe, try to keep this thing. But I'm not trying to tell you, yes, you should go there. No, you should not. Be like, I mean, of course, I'm certain it, at some points you have to, particularly on a boat. Without yeah. a doubt. Yeah. But. Yeah, you have to be a little commanding. Yeah. But yeah, and then every now and then you'll see just, you know, as a, I, a lot of times I'm, I'm hired because I'm a photographer and people want to take photos and explore things. And I've got little tricks and things that I, mm-hmm. um, that I can show people that be like, oh, wow, I never thought about it. I never saw that before. Reflections in particular, you know, yeah. negative space, you know, there's so much in the negative space. Um, so yeah, but I'm curious about you in terms of orientation, right? So here you are not living a life that is the standard, you know, Graduate high school, go to college, get a job, get a wife, get kids and a dog, and nine to five and a pension and whatever, whatever, and retire it and whatever, and die it, die at the age. And and so having worked 40 different jobs and not necessarily being on a linear path, as our culture would see it, how does that, how have you stayed oriented? I'm not, (laughs) I don't feel particularly oriented. for me, orientation is, um, it's retrospective, I suppose. I can always look back and it's narrativized. I tell myself a story about where I think I've been, and then I just adjust from that point on. So, yeah, I don't feel particularly moored or oriented. Um, if I ever feel turned around or lost, I am immediately grateful for having a very... Um, kind of with it wife you know who's got a uh who's got a foot in the real world you know uh that helps me a lot but as far as orienting myself if there's any one thing that i know is incredibly prescient and and important to me it's just being nice Mm. well being kind i should say Mm. because nice is is like what you do at the bank but (laughs) kindness is how you feel about the banker Mm. you know Mm -hmm. um like, I was at uh, Vinatuck. Did you? Are you familiar with Vinatuck? I've heard of Vinatuck. I'm not sure. It's a um, it's a festival in Crested Butte that's put on. It's it's got these old world European roots mm. where they kind mm-hmm. of burn this effigy. Uh, it sort of inspired Burning Man in a way. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And it, there's this, um, you know, they they make this effigy is normally this amorphous sort of thing that represents whatever's been sort of fucking you over for the past year you know you burn all that sort of stuff and you put your intentions into it mm. and uh when i saw it this year it was an effigy of donald trump uh and and then in very grotesque uh form and it was powerful you know like i, I get it i get why people are so disgusted by mm. that you know but i don't hate donald trump like i i don't hate him I do not like what he has to say. I don't like the way he behaves. I don't like our policies. And there's a lot about it that is disgusting to me, but I don't hate it, you know? Mm. Um, and I try to think of like, well, for one, there's too much attention. That's what that creature craves is attention. So no matter if you burn it at, at the stake, to him, it's an altar. Mm. It's a, it's a, He perceives it as a thing of worship, you know? Mm-hmm. You could shoot it with arrows. You could light it on fire but you've still built it and you're giving it attention and that's what it craves. Mm-hmm. Even though, yeah, of course, Donald Trump wants to be liked and loved, whatever. He also, above all, wants attention. So that was conflicting to me. Mm. But uh, there was also this aspect of like, there was a trial 
and they burn the grump and the people are hollering for the burning of the grump that felt really weird to me because it's not kind mm. you know mm-hmm. what i mean like uh i i felt conflicted and i'm not saying that i'm always kind i can be an asshole too but it i i'm aware of my assholishness from that orienting point of wanting to be kind first mm. so i you know we, we had to write these little grumps you had to write your own grump and mine was like an apology letter like i never hated you you know thank you for the confusion i needed that you know uh i'll, I'll take this i'll take that confusion and try to uh, alleviate my fear without wanting you to be burned you know mm-hmm. uh so that if if any sort of orientation that's it for me i guess but um i love that that's that comes beautiful. from my mom for sure She's kind above all else, mm. and uh, that's priority number one for her. You know, to to be passionate and loving and kind. You know, even though she, she's not perfect either. But um, yeah, I guess. No, Dalai Lama. That's what he says. His religion is kindness. Kindness. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, when I think about you orienting people and guiding them and and trying to guide, it is kind of cool to know where you are. You know, yeah. I, I I feel maybe um, culturally unmoored because I'm just I'm, I'm constantly trying to meet new people and find how people are human. Mm. <laughs> well, how do you do human being? Right. It's very interesting. Yeah. Let me see. Uh, <laughs> I, I've often learned from my brothers and sisters and, and older people. Uh, I'm, I'm one of six, wow. so I, I I pay attention to what other people have done and make my choices from there. I, I certainly have made a lot of my own mistakes, but I've avoided many by having witnessed what's happened before me. So, um, where are you in the pecking order of your siblings? Mathematically, I share the middle with my sister. Uh, I'm not a twin, but there's six of us. So yeah, and there's no, yep, got it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like to make that distinction that I'm not a middle child. Even though I <laughs> probably have a lot of those aspects. There's four of us from my mom and my dad. And then I have two half sisters from my mom and my stepfather. Got it. Um, so I was the youngest for a good portion of my life for 10 years. And then youngest youngest brother. Yeah. I have an older brother, two older sisters, and then two younger sisters. I see. Okay. So, yeah. Wow. And you, are you close to everybody? Uh, I mean, no, no, I I love them all. I love them all very much, but I'm not, are they all scratching their head talking about you? Like what's going on? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I, um, I love them all very much, but I don't know that I'm, it's tough. I don't know that I'm terribly close with a lot of people. I have a lot of friends that I love and very much. Uh, Tiffany's probably the only person I'm very close with. I have um, a close nephews, good relationship with my nephews and nieces, mm-hmm. but I don't really have a lot of closeness going on. It's just not my, my thing. What would it mean to be, like, what does that mean to be close? Like, That's what do you question. have? Well, like... Um, Boy, I'm, you've really flipped this fucking thing around on me, man. <laughs> I'm meant to be telling the questions here. One of the most compelling things about your podcast is you. Well, uh, it's generous of you to say, but the uh, um, closeness, like I, I used to witness uh, in my friends, like the way they would get along with their fathers. And it was like this chuckly, giggly sort of like they could talk about stuff. And um, I never, never had that. Like I could not. I had one real conversation with my father and it was when I was an adult and then he died not long after that. We I just we were never close. So I th- I see closeness as like, um, you call each other, you talk, mm-hmm. you're wondering how you're doing. They're wondering how you're doing, that sort of thing. I I don't really, 
like I'll fall out of touch with friends for years. Like Brett, I love Brett. Brett married us. You know, oh, Brett. Really? Brett was the officiant of my at my wedding. <laughs> I didn't know Brett particularly well before that, and I don't really know him particularly well now. We're we're constantly learning new things about each other. Appreciate the heck out of each other. That's very much clear. so. Yeah, very much so. But we don't. You know, we didn't talk for many years, yeah. and it wasn't. There was no falling out or anything. We just. I mean, I, it's likely because I'm like just such a narcissist or something. I just don't really, I or I have such low self esteem that I don't feel like anyone would actually miss me. So I don't, I don't know. I don't really know how to quite put it. But that's yeah. surprising. But I, I could see being the youngest child, maybe you know, know, or or well, for a while you were. Yeah, for but a bit. I wonder. I bet it's. It's one thing that I noticed with my boys is, you know, Kai being the oldest and Traeger being the youngest. There's, there were distinctions about their personalities that came out that I think were very much about older, younger. Older, younger. You know, for sure. Yeah. I wonder if that... I'm an identical twin, so it's a bit of a mind fuck yeah, really for yeah. me. But that's fascinating. I'm surprised for, that, that you would say that you have a low self-esteem and even that you would say that you're a narcissist. I don't get either of those from you. <laughs> Well, I told you I wasn't particularly well-oriented. <laughs> Low self-esteem. I guess we're all of those things, right? You're also kind and empathetic and, and confident at the same time, right? Yeah, like the yeah. journey. I was talking to a friend recently about, um, he had an ayahuasca experience, like just a couple weekends ago. And uh, I was asking him about it. And he said, you know, there was a moment where, and to your point of play, he was in a play, he was witnessing the play. Yeah. And uh, he said he was every character at once. The play was just like these two puppies constantly rolling around. And he was the trickster. He was an audience member. He was the hero. He was the villain. He was all these things. And he was bored. Hmm. You know, and all that. He was like, he just experienced the full range of of expression in, in witnessing this thing. That like... And I feel that resonates with me quite a lot because I don't feel um, that things are ever black and white. I think we've already talked about this, but mm. like that, that it's always nebulous and there's no, when you talk about ultimately orienting, you know, um, it's, it is very difficult because there is no good guy. It's, this isn't a Disney film. It's a Kurosawa or whatever, you know, it's yeah. a, there's not necessarily a good guy and a bad guy. It's not, no one ever thinks that they're evil, that they're wrong but they're doing it anyway. There's always a narrative. Mm-hmm. There's always a reason for someone to say why justifying what they've done. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's always kind of fascinating to me. So yeah, I don't feel uh, necessarily oriented by anything other than a desire to be, probably a desire to be liked. That mm-hmm. might be the narcissism, but it is. it manifests as kindness. You know, I want to be kind. I want, and I'm always aware when I'm not. You know, I'm always, like painfully, it was yeah. like when I used to drink, I don't drink anymore, but when I did, I'd hear people tell stories about, you know, they'd wake up the next day and not remember what went on. I remember everything. I'd remember every stupid sentence. Painful. Every, <laughs> I mean, I never forgot anything. I'm a next day cringer. Yeah, <laughs> for man, sure. a total next day cringer. <laughs> yeah. So I, it's like that with me with, with dickishness or, you know, a lapse of kindness. I'm always painfully aware of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that always, yeah, that's fascinating. But enough about you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about, how do you feel about me? Yeah. <laughs> I do, I, so before we, uh, we probably need to wrap it up here, it's about 12.30. Okay. 
Um, how you, we, we need to go by pretty soon. Huh? I'm good. I, I, the, um, I think that Nancy has already taken Julia to get her, uh, her gift. So okay. technically one o'clock is the cutoff. Okay, but, uh, cool. Well, I'll so, need to pack up. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, let's but, get um, I, with, I want to get to, um, what you hope to do with your writing and, and your art and your guiding. Like, where do you, where are you trying to point this, this thing? That's why great question. Um, you know what I'm working on with the Wiser Muser and the big, you know, the bigger picture story around it is just one project. And um, I mentioned Enlighten the Load earlier. That's my sort of that would be my my nonfiction work. Um, I have a vision for something to do with that. Um, what I learned through that process and what I continue to learn. Um, and then there's other there's other stories. So, you know, I would, yeah, absolutely to have a whole body of work published, sharing with others and, you know, really spending my time talking about these, these things, you know, the, a deeper and more broad uh, conversation about life and the meaning of it and what's, what makes it, you know, how do we maximize the quality of our life? Hmm. And, um, and I, you know, is there something there? Is there is there something in Platheism that would help a lot of people kind of get out of an inherited belief system to explore and ask questions and inquire in a different way and and reinvent um, themselves and and really reinvent the relationships they have not only with themselves but with others? Um, that's kind of the big vision. That's sort of my maybe my own narcissistic thing that maybe 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 there's something there that could have an impact. Um, I think being a being a concierge right now and being a guide, you know, those are those are really nice professions to continue to practice sharing and and inquiring and and assessing what might almost like wielding wielding my own wiser amuser to inspire and wake up another's wiser amuser and get them thinking and inquiring and um, in a new way to grow themselves. Um, without being mistaken as the wiser amuser, you know, mm. that's important. That's a big challenge. Um, yeah. So yeah, publishing books, stories, um, continuing to be able to expose people to environments that, that, you know, that they wouldn't go on themselves, but they would feel safe enough to go with me. And, and then I can empower them to continue to go and, and inquire. I, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my photography, I have different themes. And one of the themes is a path that either, you know, that disappears into something, whether it's a, you know, um, a mountaintop or a, or a, or a forest or, mm -hmm. or whatever, um, that that's kind of the, the go for a walk, you know, inquire with your shadow, you know, hear what it has to say, and then, you know, continue to explore that conversation, um, as well as with another. So, um, I, you know, as a, as a, you know, I'm in my second go around in terms of my, my relationship at home and, and, you know, being a, as a single dad for a long time, I couldn't be, go be a guide. I couldn't, I couldn't afford to be a concierge at a hotel. Right. It just, I had to make a certain amount of money. And for years and years, I would, I would get a job for the money thinking it was going to be a good fit. It just clearly would be not a good fit and I'd fail and I'd be poor. And I, you know, eventually really rock bottom was where I didn't have a choice, but I had to move into my sister's basement, you know? So part of what I would, what I would like is that you know, and thank God my sister was there, you know, yeah. so rock bottom varies for different people. That's yeah. a pretty, pretty good rock bottom if, if you're going to have it. But, but ultimately wanting to be 
you know, have integrity and, and, and be responsible and be a good dad and raise healthy kids and continue to be healthy in my own relationships. Um, being in relationship now has given me a lot more balance. And so to continue to grow that relationship, solidify that in a way that allows me the freedom to really be able to sit down and get everything out of my head, write it down and, and put it, develop the kind of relationships that I would need in order to be able to get it to a broader audience, if that's even, you know, uh, possible yeah um i think that's and and the 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 opportunity to continue to inquire the the content keeps coming i've got i've probably got enough poems and aphorisms and pithy sayings and thoughts that i could probably put a few more books together and the photography is just something that you know you you go for i go you know i i used to say I, i went for walks to retrieve content and that was for my writing content but of course while you're out there you're taking pictures and so it was a very natural yeah. marriage between my words and my photography and that's probably what makes me unique um there's a lot of photographers out there that are taking far better pictures than i am um and there's people out there that are writing things that you know that i could never write you know but but i think my the the photography which is the space you know and the words which are sort of a sign of the time or whatever that lesson is in the moment um that might be something to development but the funny thing is the wiser muser is a book within a story yeah you know, really that's i had to complete that because it informs the story so yeah. completing the story and really showing the context of what that is and giving it kind of a if i think when people see that the context of the wiser muser within that world and within that story it's a i think it it's it's a disarming it's a more disarming where if i said hey this is the wiser muser this is telling you what to do i think people don't receive that as well than when they realize that the origin of it is in the context of the story and tr- me trying to work out whatever these characters are trying to work out yeah. they can connect with that in a more you know through fiction yeah you know, it's like true through through fiction so that's if i can pull that off i think i'd I think I can die feeling like, all right, yeah. I got my responsibility of all this stuff rolling through my head. If that's going to happen, then I, you know, I shouldn't waste it. Yeah. And, and maybe I can enjoy, enjoy the ride while it's, you know, well, you seem to be my en- kids could. <laughs> you seem to be enjoying it and your kids seem to be enjoying it. Yeah. Uh, it'd be interesting to hear what they have to say. I'm sure they have plenty of complaints. <laughs> two things in particular about your work that I really like. I, I love photos of roads and trails mm. that are empty mm-hmm. that that go in some direction but maybe that you don't know exactly where uh, i love those you've got a bunch of those mm-hmm. those shots that I, I quite like and you write like a guide in that you're not like a guide doesn't tell you where the trail ends and see you later the guide helps you figure out how to get to the end of the trail or mm-hmm. the beginning or whatever it is it's a great way to teach it's one of my favorite ways to have learned something is where when someone makes you feel like the answer was your idea. You know, it's not like that, that they just told you, here's how, you, here's the answer. It's like, here, well, how would you arrive at that answer? You know, let's, let's help you figure out how you would figure this out. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's, I think what you're doing with the wiser amuser and just your whole way of doing things, whether it's someone's night out on the town or, you know, a hike somewhere, a river trip, two-year road trip. Yeah, yeah. How are you? Yeah, let me help you figure out how you would do this, not how I would do this. It's it's great, man. Yeah, thank you. 
Well, hey, I wish you the very best of luck. We'll, we'll put up links. We'll tell everybody we possibly can. Shout to the rooftops about <laughs> about your book. Um, Likewise, and, and we'll uh, we'll do what we can. <laughs> I look forward to your continuing to follow your journey too. Yeah. What a, I, I'm all, really truly, it's, it's an honor to sit here with you. Likewise. I look forward to doing it again. Heck yeah! Right on. All right. Everybody claims that they want the best things out of life. Not everyone, not everyone wanna go through the toils and strides. Like this particular fella walks around all day long singing, shine Harry Hippie lies asleep in the shade. Life don't bug him. Cause he thinks he's got it made He never worried about nothing in particular Ooh, he might even sell Free press on sunset I'd like to help a man When he's dying But I can't help him much When he's sleeping on the ground like a bottle and water and it just flow through life. Hi, Tiffany here saying thank you for listening to the Monkey Tooth Podcast. If you haven't already, or it's been a while, check out our website, mtp.dog. There's plenty of information there. An about tab with a little bio on Andrew, myself, and our dog Pele. There's also a van build tab detailing how we did our van conversion. A journal tab and we, as an Andrew, are doing our best to keep that up to date. And last but not least, a contact tab where you can leave your thoughts, suggestions, or questions. You can also contact us on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram, Monkey Tooth Podcast. If you would like to donate and or subscribe to the cause, you can go to Patreon and GoFundMe at Monkey Tooth Podcast. Patreon is not just a place to subscribe. We post lots of content there as well. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you. Love to all. But he still walks around all day long singing this song. Tell me, where will you be going? But oh, man, when I get this horn and starts blowing Will you hang around L.A. Or hitch a ride on the freeway Meet an old familiar face at a new place I'd like to help a man when he's dying Help him if it's somewhere out of town. Sorry, Harry. I think I'm gonna put you down. Everybody help me sing the song.